So it is November 12th, 2017. Our message today is called Hoss. And uh, I'd like to take a brief moment to comment. I thought that Pastor Wade's message on offensive conviction Wednesday was the kind that you need to keep in the hopper somewhere. Listen to it every few months. The revelation given at Caesarea Philippi will be tested against every backdrop that there could be. At Caesarea Philippi, the knowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God was tested against the backdrop of imperial Rome. There was a temple to Pan there. There was a temple to Augustus Caesar, the Son of God, there. This is the backdrop in which Jesus asked, Who do men say that I am? As they moved southward from there, they would have gone through Capernaum, through Nazareth. They would have had to have stand the test of their families' scrutiny. When they seemed so ordinary, so humble, and they had such a divine revelation, how would the convictions that they have stand up to their own hometown? From there, they would have passed further southward through Samaria. What happens to people that are foreigners, when they run into the same conviction that you have, those that are the product of backsliding, what happens to them? And the convictions stood that test. And finally they arrived in the capital of the religious center of the world. And their convictions stood that test. And yours will too. Amen. I love Pastor Wade's message. We're going to miss him today. He is in Chicago. And... You know, they say when the cat is away, the mice do play. So tonight at our house, there is no ending time, period. So if you would like to come over and fellowship till late, late, late into the evening, we'll try to set a new record tonight. <laughs> no, the Sutherlands are teaching parenting classes, and uh, they're at a one association church in Chicago, the Arising Church, and we're happy that that is the case because... What you're blessed with every day here, they're being blessed with there. And it leaves me as the guest speaker here today. So I want to get into hoss with you today. When I say hoss, that might bring different things to mind to the different generations in this room. You know, I did not grow up with the rifleman, with rawhide, with gun smoke, and with bonanza. But the generation before me did. And I listened to their stories. And many of the movie stars of the 1980s came from that time period in the 60s when they were getting their start on TV. Today, if you look up Hoss in Wiktionary, you're going to see a big, strong, respected, dependable person. Usually a man, one who is large enough to be likened unto a horse. A more technical dictionary may say a vulgarism for a horse meaning a very common way to say horse. But the guy who made this term famous, can we put that slide up, is Bobby Dan Davis Blocker. How about that name? Bobby Dan Davis a Blocker. It's like his parents were confused. He was born in 1928. He died at 43 in 1972. Apparently a piece of cheese pizza was lodged in his artery. I'm joking. That is not how he died, as far as, far as I know. <laughs> He's best remembered for his role as Hoss Cartwright. A little trivia, in the show even, his name was Eric Hoss Cartwright. 
But Eric was such an unpopular name even back then, he just went by Hoss. His character Hoss was conceived of as a stereotype. The idea was that he would be a slow-witted, gentle giant to kind of add a little depth to the show as far as the spectrum of characters. He was 6'4 and 300 pounds, and ironically, he was anything but slow-witted. He played college football here in Texas. He graduated as an English major. How many of you were English majors? You see, because they're weird, right? <laughs> no, you have to love learning to be an English major. He was drafted into the Army during the Korean War. It's Veterans Day today. We want to honor our veterans. We also want to take seriously what it means to be a soldier in Christ, and we're going to aim at that in this message. He got a master's degree in the dramatic arts post-World War. I'm sorry, post-Korean War. He taught the sixth grade, then he taught high school. He was working on a Ph.D. at UCLA when he was standing in a phone booth. I can't imagine that by itself. And somebody thought the guy filled up the whole phone booth and said, you know, he might play a big dumb guy on this television show. And he was actually working on his Ph.D., uh, he started the Bonanza Steakhouses. Have you ever eaten at a Bonanza Steakhouse? Yeah. He started them in 1963, ensuring that nobody would ever enjoy steak again. <laughs> You'd have to come to your pastor's house to get a decent steak. When he was born in 1928, he was born in DeKalb, Texas. The brother weighed 14 pounds at birth. It was reported that he was the biggest baby ever born in Bowie County. Now, they had to say Bowie County and not the state because Brandon would also be born in Texas. <laughs> By the age 12, I only picked you because your brother looks like Hoss Cartwright. <laughs> By the age 12, he was six feet tall and 200 pounds. So he kind of, he had this his whole life. I wanted to let you know um, as we get into this message, because I promise it's not about Bonanza, we're using a homiletic that has to do with the word hoss, and we'll pick up on that here in just a second, that um, this show was so successful that in the 10 years of the decade, 1960, it was for nine years in the top five shows, and for three of those years was number one. You know, success with all things. This guy started at 300 pounds, and uh, he finished the season at 365 pounds. That's a pound for every day in the year, you know, just to spread that out. I don't know why he was such a relatable figure to the generation that was right before me, but I have an idea. And he comprises some ideals that uh, were highly esteemed at one time and now have fallen out of fashion. But I thought it was a funny quote from his father. His father lived through the Depression. His father said, he, he said of his father, My daddy used to say to me that I was too big to ride and too little to hitch a wagon to, and I wasn't good for anything. And the idea was that with little praise, he still acted admirably. Does that make sense? That he didn't need constant motivation, no stickers of achievement for showing up. Bonanza set before our country a kind of simpler yearning for the 30s and the 40s. Now, certainly the show set was set before that, but the parents 
of the children in the 60s were born in the 30s and the 40s. And the ideal man in the United States was changing in the 60s. Have you noticed that? So today, we tend towards extraordinary extremes for the ideal male. You can see that in rap videos. You can see that in wrestlers on TV. You might see it in a movie star or an athlete. We want bigger-than-life, over-the-top, extreme personalities. But the children in the 60s, who were still looking up to their fathers, born in the 30s and the 40s, they apprised things like stature with godly restraint, pleasantness coupled with power, force paired with faithfulness, even a slight timidity as long as it was juxtaposed with a staggering strength. Those were the ideal males of the time. It's kind of sad how things have changed when you think about it. To illustrate the point, Hoss was featured in all kind of bar fights. I even found this morning a clip of him wrestling a bear to save a child, right? It got downright kind of ridiculous. But when they publicized the show, think of what an advertisement, a movie bill looks like today. And I want to show you a few for Bonanza. Let's go to our next slide. Look at it. He's smiling. He's got rosy cheeks. This is the tough guy in the show. But you get the impression that he would rather be gentle. Let's take our next one. Almost every photograph. I mean, probably not what you would consider a great-looking man. But something's endearing and kind about him. Let's take our next one. You can't find one where he's not smiling. There's one more. See, this is not how we market things today, is it? Today, he'd have to have a six-pack of abs. He'd have to look like some steroided-out freak. He would have to, in some way, feature disproportionate things to be attractive to us. In our day and time, this is not nearly as appealing. And I'm not trying to glorify the 60s. It was maybe the greatest parenting failure in our nation's history was the 60s. It gave us the generations that have come afterwards that have each won the prize for being worse than the one before, and that was pretty hard to do. Much about the 60s was openly demonic. And yet, at that time, we still had an idyllic hero. I wanted to talk to you about this as it relates to the Scripture. Exodus 15.3 says something. It says, the Lord is a warrior, the Lord is his name. When you think about the Lord, you might think of a lily white Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes, kind of a Nordic version, with a soft little lamb around his neck, posted on a black velvet board for a Sunday school class. Around the world, that's everybody's favorite Jesus. The good-looking movie star never uh, raised his voice Jesus, that of course is not, not real in scripture, not real uh, in life, not real anywhere except on that black felt board. But in the Bible, he's far more complex than that. The Lord is a warrior. That is his name. When you think of a warrior, what do you think of? I mean, let that image come to mind. Now while you have that image in your mind, consider what the same chapter says 10 verses later in verse 13. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. 
In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The Bible sets up the Lord, not so much like Hoss Cartwright. Hoss Cartwright is actually being modeled after something we see in the Lord. Altogether loving and yet powerful enough to get it done. This was the ideal male because this was something that we see in the Lord. Not a pushover, not something to be laughed at, something entirely loving and gentle, but more than enough power to get it done. Amen? Amen. I love those two verses. I'm comforted by them like bookends in a bookshelf. They provide stability in my life. The Lord is loving and He's also a warrior. He's both at the same time. I am personally comforted by that. An old man might look to Donald Trump And because he's worth $10 billion, he might look up to him. But this generation tends towards much stranger extremes. Like a corporate CEO that is equally famous for his homosexuality. Or this generation might look up to an athlete who has no idea whether he's a man or a woman. This generation might apprise a female singer who's not as much famous for her voice as the exposure of her genitalia. This generation might look at a celebrity and be excited about them, look up to them. And when you ask what they're famous for, they're famous for being infamous. Never starred in anything except a leak taped. And their only accomplishment was that they are both well-known and born rich. This generation apprises those kind of things. When they do manage to lift up something that looks masculine and idealize a masculine figure the figure is overly sexualized in ways that are grotesque so as to be misconstrued for an advertisement for steroid abuse have you ever seen an action figure you know they don't they don't look like batman and robin did in the 50s you know an action figure today does not uh even even superman and those kind of Now they have to have a physique that resembles steroids. I want to take the word hoss and use it as a homiletic today. I think when you think of the word hoss, you could think of a powerful, loving, moral man who is ready to be used by God. Is that fair enough? How many of you hear it still in common speech? This show made a big enough impression upon our society that even in diverse communities around the country today, somebody might walk in and say, hey, what's up, boss? Usually with kind of a head nod. And we don't even know where it came from. It came from the ideal male of the 60s that was being portrayed on TV of an earlier, simpler time with less social revolution. As it happens, my studies this week took me into a Greek word. I'd like to show it to you. Hoss. And hoss this week is used in a, in a manner or in the way of. So when you hear the Greek word hoss, it's often translated like, sometimes it's translated as, according to, but what it means is to be in the manner of or in the way of. Normally when I'm reading the Older Testament, I stay in the Hebrew. This whole week I've been reading the Septuagint. My son's been picking my brain with me, and he said, Dad, of all the languages that they could have translated the Hebrew Scripture in, they chose to preserve it in Greek for a reason. You should consider that. Me being a grandfather now, I figure it's time to start learning from my sons. 
And I uh, picked the word hoss this week. Let's go to Genesis 3. How many of you knew who hoss was before I showed you the picture? Yeah, we're not so old, huh? DJ, you didn't know who Hoss was, did you? You didn't like him, though. You in Genesis 3? Starting in verse 22. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. The word like here is represented in the LXX as hos, the same Greek word we've been talking about. This might be one of the most pivotal scriptures in the entire Bible. What's wrong with being like in the same manner or way as God? Isn't that the expressed desire of God in the scripture? What on earth could be wrong with that? God expressed his desire for us to be like him in Genesis 1.26. Turn a page or two. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So what's wrong? What's the problem with man being like God? The answer is that God did want to make man a hoss, just like him. The creation of man was the beginning of that process. After all, when he created him, he said, I made them in my likeness. Think about it, though. Adam was created in the likeness of God, but he was still fallible. Is God fallible? No, but Adam was. He was limited in his understanding of God and the spiritual realm. He was not glorified. He was not incorruptible. He was not yet seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. So the plan of man as God's divine agency on earth was ongoing. It was not complete the moment that God made man. Consider these verses. This is going to blow your mind. Is that okay? Are you ready for that? Are you still awake? Because you're going to need to be awake to get this. You're not going to hear this just anywhere. Amen. Go to Revelation 13. When you get to the 8th verse, call out there. 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 All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. When was the Lamb slain? From the creation of the world. That's an interesting concept. Watch it as we get to 2 Timothy 1, 9. We're going to go through a few of these rapid fire because there's a bunch to get to. 2 Timothy 1, 9. Who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus. What's that say? Before the beginning of time. You needed grace in Christ Jesus before time began? The lamb was slain since the creation of the world? 
but now revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Look at Titus 1, 2. A faith in knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised. Promised when? Before the beginning of time. You can be in church your entire life, read over these, and never have noticed that these things were promised before time was instituted. What was promised? The hope of eternal life. How about 1 Corinthians 2, 7? If you can trust me, we'll put it on the screen. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Let me recap for you just a little bit. The lamb was destined to be slain before time began. Grace was given you before time began. Eternal life was promised before time began. A secret wisdom was destined for your glory before time began. And that's not all. The scripture keeps going with this concept. Proverbs 8.23 I was appointed from eternity... From the beginning, before the world began. Proverbs 8 is wisdom personified. It it is speaking of the very nature of Jesus Christ before time began. John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Is this getting redundant for you yet? Two more. 1 Peter 1, 20. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Are we pretty clear now that we're before, 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 before? I'm going to give you my favorite one now. Because those last several spoke about Jesus. The first several spoke about things that were destined for you. This one brings it all together. This is Matthew 25, 34. I'll wait for you to get to this one. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. See, the kingdom of God was prepared for us since the creation of the world. And the likeness or the image of God that we would bear in that kingdom is the very image of Christ. He is not a reaction to man's fall, not a plan B. Didn't arrive on the scene because man screwed up. He was destined before man fell. He was the plan all along. God was not caught off guard by man's failure. In fact, he made provision for man's failure well before man actually failed. Now, come on, that's mind-blowing. If you sit on that for a little while, its implications are actually endless. This means that God knew ahead of time what would happen and he was big enough to work it into his plan. He was big enough to form a plan around it. He's not reacting to your failure. He knew about your failure before you failed. That's incredible. Because he planned a solution for you before you even knew you needed it. He had it there waiting for you 
so that when your eyes were opened, there would be a way to help you. So again, what is wrong with eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Why was it such a problem that man had now become like God? The answer is at least twofold. First, man was tainted. And now, the image of God that is man would be tainted. God didn't want that, and I don't either, do you? Does it cause your stomach to turn when you see people in God's name do unholy things? It really does, apparently. It causes his stomach to turn too. Second, the process that man had utilized to become like God was a shortcut. And like most shortcuts, the temporary satisfaction of getting something done quickly is usually immediately displaced by the consequence of having gotten off track in doing it. You ever taken a shortcut and you're sure you're going to get there faster and then you find out that you're altogether lost? You ladies have done that, I know. Never your husbands. The difference between you ladies and your husbands is Ladies, you're smart enough to admit to it when it happens. The husband says he's exploring, you know. The Lord had a detailed plan that started with man, and that man would become a nation. Concerning that special nation that would come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God says this in Romans 8.29. Let's start there. Then we'll start to bring this into a more practical realm for your daily life. For those God foreknew, by the way, there was one nation on earth that he foreknew. He said from Abraham's time forward that he was going to bring them forward. And then from Abraham through Isaac all the way down to Jacob to form that nation, he began to call them forward. For those God foreknew, if you want to test that hermeneutic, look at Romans 11:2, and it will tell you who God foreknew. They're Israel, the only predestination that there is. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the what? Likeness. Likeness of his son. See, it was not enough to simply be in God's image. The perfect image of God is reflected in Christ. And that is what we're aiming for. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Guys, that's the big picture. That's the telos of God. But how do we get from here to there? Why would this matter to you on a Sunday morning other than that you love the Lord? Practically, how do we get transformed into the image of God? Is that worth wanting to know? Most of our theology has centered around solely a supernatural experience. You need to be born again. Then you need to be glorified at His coming. Those things are true, but how much control do you have over either one? Once you're born again, and you can only be born again if the Spirit leads you, can you control the day on which you're glorified? But there is a part of this process that's up to us. It has to do with sanctification. Let's read Deuteronomy 8.5. Say, there when you were there, this will begin our sixth scripture string that will take you from the law to the prophets to the writings to the New Testament law, to the Newer Testament prophets, and the Newer Testament writings. That way you will have covered it from beginning to end. In Deuteronomy 8.5, who is there? there? Now everybody in the church is going to have to speak to me today. Who is there? there? Now it's confession time. I don't know how long this has been sitting in a fridge, but when I opened it behind the pulpit as we were starting today, I drank it and something like an egg yolk went down my throat. 
I'm not entirely happy about that. But I'm hopeful for better things as the service goes. I'm going to leave that as a blessing over here for y'all. In Deuteronomy 8.5, as Moses is recounting on the last week, last day of his life, hear this phrase. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. You might have guessed that this word again in the LXX is hoss. The phrase as here. Know then in your heart that as. Meaning that in the same manner or in the same way an earthly father disciplines his son for the son's maturing to completion, our heavenly father disciplines us for our spiritual maturing unto completion. It's through discipleship that we begin to bear his image. The same way that a father trains a son and the better the father trains the son, the more the son starts to look like the father, our heavenly father is doing that with us. That process can't begin until you are born again. He has to be your father. But once he is your father, he begins training you. Every person in this room that is truly been born from above is being trained from the heavens by their heavenly father through his earthly agency here. You might see this written a little differently as uh, you look at something like Colossians 1.15. Let's do that. Gabriel. I wouldn't mind a bottle of water if you... That was a rather unpleasant experience. That, however, was entirely humorous. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. What is Jesus? Oh, come on, church. It's written on the screen. When I say, what is Jesus? You just have to look no further than the first four words on the screen. What is Jesus? He is the image. He is the image. When we say, let us make man in our own image, you didn't look like Christ. You know, God has a propensity to do this. He'll say, hey, I am giving you the promised land. He means that he is giving you on an ongoing basis the promised land. He will say you are a new creation when in reality you're a new creation in the sense that he's declared you one, but practically you're becoming a new creation, aren't you? Well, when he said he made man in his image, he began a process to put man into his image. And it had to start somewhere. And it's had some ups and downs through the way, not because of God, but because of you, because of me. But the ultimate goal was always that we look like Christ. Christ was never a reaction to man's sin. In 1 Corinthians 15, 49, we have a promise. It says, And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. What is the promise? You will be in the image of Christ. And who is Christ the image of? Man. It's like a mirror reflecting God and another mirror in front of that mirror. (laughs) Sometimes discipleship is a little bit like that. 
I've got a mirror and I'm holding it up. Andrew, do you see? Do you see? Matthew, do you see? Do you see? Jen, do you see? And who doesn't want that? See, we should want people around us helping us to see how close or far we are from the image. But you also have to remember to take that mirror and turn it around and go, ah! <laughs> Lest you get too used to pointing out where everybody else needs to change their image. The process of discipleship is the Lord discipling us all through our function in the body. And what happens is we start to see who He is and who we are and trust that God will help close that gap because He's promised us the same way we bear the earthly man's image, we will bear the image of the man that came from heaven. See, we're already trained to be in the image of dirt, aren't we? To be dirty is the natural state of a man. You don't believe me? Just look around. Go to Walmart after midnight. It's like a other world experience. <laughs> to bear the heavenly image, we must be transformed supernaturally and then continue to be sanctified through the work of the Spirit. That's true. But the role of discipleship is to provide an environment and an opportunity for the continued development of the man of God to be transformed into God's image. That's what discipleship does. How well would a newborn baby do if you took them out of the NICU and you said, fantastic, you've been born again, see us next year and tithe occasionally? See, that won't work, will it? Why wouldn't it work? What do they have to do? Oh, geez, what's wrong with y'all this morning? What do babies have to do? Come on. Now, all right, guys, guys, you have no idea what babies have to do. Let's be honest. If you're a female in the room, stand up. No, I'm serious. If you're a female in the room, stand up. All right, so everybody that is standing, I'd like to know, just like popcorn, what do you have to do with a baby? Feed it and change You can sit down now. You did very good. Men, did you see how the women stood up and spoke? That was your job. I had them stand up and speak, but it's your job to lead your home. And if while I'm leading a message and we're having an interactive discussion, you can't find the courage to speak, where will they be? Where will your family be if you can't speak in a church? You're sure not going to do it out in the world. So the ladies just did a good job of outpacing you, right? What are you going to do now, man? What are you going to do, man? That's not because I'm a cheerleader. It's because we are practicing something in here to perform out there. What do babies need? Food and to be changed. Do you know what disciples need? Food and to be changed. The exact same thing. Life-changing ministries, changing one life or one diaper at a time. It just depends on the day. (laughs) Not always. At different spectrums in the life, we go from diapers right back to diapers. I'm not proud of either one, but it happens. It is God's prerogative to say, See, I have given you the land, when practically you were still taking the promised land. It's also God's prerogative to say you were a new creation, when practically you're still becoming a new creation in an ever-increasing manner. It was in God's prerogative to say you were made in His image when practically you were made in His image or being made in His image and will be perfected in His image. 
How many of you have read Genesis 1.27 like that before? We tend to read it as done deal. Made in the image of God and then we fell from the image of God and we're just trying to get back to where we were. Wrong. That's completely wrong. We get back to further than we were. Adam wasn't glorified. The whole earth was not completely subject to God. In fact, it was Adam's job to bring things into subjection to God. There was darkness on the earth that had to be driven out. There, there were powers that had to be subdued. For God's sake, there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And who sinned before the man sinned? Certainly the snake did. We're not even going to argue about the woman. Paul settled that issue and I don't want to talk about it. See, there were problems here. And God was aware of those problems a long time before man was aware or became a part of it. And when he said, let us make man in our own image, it shouldn't be a huge surprise to any of us that that's a bit of a process. And we're still undergoing it. The fact that a man showed up did not mean that he was the perfected image of God. Even when God says that he is in his image, he was not the perfect image of God yet. He was incomplete. But Christ is not incomplete. Oh, come on now. This means that something is coming to us. We're aiming at something better than just restoring the old car. We're taking it and making it a hovercraft, man. It was in God's prerogative to say that you are in His image. And the truth is you are being made into His image. You're somewhere in process. Discipleship prior to being born again leads you into a collision with God. Discipleship subsequent to salvation leads you into greater transformation with God. That's the point. The point is that you become a greater and greater image bearer. I want to show you again in the LXX verse. I have this one on a slide, so let's use that slide. Can you all read that? This is a popular verse in this church. It's the story of Sina and Moses. Jonathan and his armor bearer, they're going to taunt Philistines. And if the Philistines believe they can win, then that'll be a clear sign that the armor bearer and Jonathan are supposed to go up and defeat them. And in the NIV, this passage says, do whatever you have in mind to do. I'm with you heart and soul. Of course, in the LXX, it's a little different. And said to him, the one carrying his weapons, you do all whatever your heart should will, turn yourself. Behold, I am with you, as your heart, my heart. The number there for as, in the second sentence, is 5613. It's hos. Consider what that means. It's saying in the same manner or the same way that your heart is, my heart is. This is a passage between two men who are at war. Did you know that God put mankind on this earth because God is at war? The reason that he brought Israel out of Egypt was to judge the gods of Egypt. Ephesians 3.10 teaches us that through the church, he is making manifest his will. He's making it known to spiritual powers. Our God is at war and he has cho chosen you to assist him in that battle. What an incredible thing. So how does that relate to you practically? Well... The Word of God inclines the heart to become like God. This is probably the most understated purpose of the law that is directly said in the Peshat of the Scripture, the plain text. 
The whole point of discipleship is not rote compliance. It's not just aimed at changing your behavior. It's actually changing your heart. Ladies, if you have to heckle your husband to get him to take you out on a date, are you happy when you actually get out on the date with him? Because you don't think they want to be there. You ever been with somebody and you're talking to them and their mind is somewhere else? You ought to try preaching on a Sunday morning. Come on now. Are you here? Yes. Are you here? Yes. See, the goal of discipleship is to intermingle your heart with God so that you, like this armor bearer, could look right at our heavenly leader and say, as your heart is, in the same manner as your heart, hey, hoss, I'm just like you. That's the point. That's what we're aiming at. Deuteronomy 5.29 is a passage that says clearly in the plain text what the law was aiming at. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commandments always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. The law inclines the hearts, friends, and the prophets warn the soul. Notice that discipleship is not aiming at mere compliant behavior. No, it's much, much more than that. Discipleship is aiming at the motivation of your heart. That takes us to our first real crunching point this morning. If you have to be motivated by external things, reward, loss of reward, maybe penalty, isn't that for the immature? See, when you have to be told, if you do that, God is going to get you, isn't that for a man whose heart is nothing like God's? Because his heart wants something other than what God wants. If you have to be told, if you give, you'll get more, then is your giving motivated externally or internally? See, I would say it's external. I would say that you are giving in order to get, which is nothing like God at all. He doesn't give to get. He gives because he's righteous and it's the right thing to do. Internal motivation is for mature, for the mature. Our aim is not reward or absence of penalty. Our aim is to be like God. Hoss, in the same manner or the same way as God. As we sit and is deadly quiet in here on a Sunday morning, Let's think about that for a minute. Why do you do what you do? Do you do it to gain something from the church, from God, from the Spirit? Do you tithe so that you won't have bad things happen to you? That's witchcraft. See, people ought to tithe because they want to participate in what God is doing. It's the right thing, not for reward or loss of reward. You have two amens in the house of God for that. We're really, really close to me coming to sit with you and letting you come stand up here and speak. Who wants to do that? Not one hand in the room. <laughs> Frank sheepishly. Ezra 10. Let's go to Ezra 10 in verse 1. Ezra 10. Even my grandson woke up. Good boy, Titus. 
You know, from the time they're little like that, they watch everything we do, and they mimic us. Before they can walk, they watch your mouth, and they try to move their mouth like you do. It's an incredible thing. How many of you have children in this room? Tell me that the child doesn't want to be just like his parents. They imitate everything that you do. We're the only thing on the earth that could claim to be a child of God and not want to be like him. Just want to get something from him or not get something from him. See, that is an entirely immature relationship with the Lord. It's a relationship, but it's an immature relationship. Are you in Ezra 10.1? Yeah. While Ezra was praying and confessing and weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men and women and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. You know, as you probably guessed in the LXX the, uh, version of the Bible, uh, they use hoss in this passage as well. Let it be done in the same manner or in the same way to the law. It's what that says in Greek. Let it be done hoss to the law. What that is displaying is beautiful when you think about it because it's not enough to not sin. Our aim is to not want to sin. Come on, are you with me there? It's great that you don't commit adultery. It's even better if you're not committing adultery in your heart. But what would be best is if you had absolutely no desire to even get near it, wouldn't it? Think about how hard this decision was for them. No amount of external motivation could have achieved compliance. They had to want to do what the Lord wanted them to do or they never would have parted from wives and children. See, no amount of reward would get you to leave a marriage that you shouldn't be in or children that you shouldn't have had. They had mingled the holy race with peoples that God said they could not marry into. But do you really think they didn't love them? Do you really think they didn't care about those children? So how strongly must they have been moved by God to have complied with that? But listen to their cry. Let it be done, hoss, in the same manner or in the same way to the law. Their hearts were beginning because of repentance to align more with God than with their fleshly concerns. Man, that's the aim of discipleship. Do you know what they've just come out of? The Babylonian captivity. And before the Babylonian captivity, a civil war. And before the civil war, a time period in the judges when every man did what was right in his own eyes. They had had enough of going it their own way. And they knew no matter how painful... They wanted what God wanted. And if they didn't, they wanted to want what God wanted. <laughs> I know that seems like a mouthful. I had a dream the other night. 
And um, I wanted to share that with you very briefly and see if you could relate to it at all. Uh, because it's a dream, I'll summarize it really quickly so I don't drag you through the strange details like why I was at a pizza buffet and there was no pizza. You know, that's, uh, that's probably just frustration. I was sitting at a table of 12 and I was all alone. And others were supposed to be there, but they weren't. And I looked up in the distance and I saw uh, a couple. And the couple was from somewhere They looked different than me. Everything about them was different. And at that time, the waitress came to me and said, since you're all alone and at a big table, move. Right? I walked away from that and went and sat down with the couple. said, hey, my name's Eric. I'm going to eat dinner with you. I don't want to eat alone and I want to talk to you. That's actually not all that strange for me to do. And while I'm sitting there talking to them and fighting through all the awkwardness of that, over the man's shoulder in the back of the restaurant is a small door. And it says, for gentlemen only. It's a strip club in the back of the restaurant. And I'm struggling not to notice the door. I'm beginning to fight with the desire to know what is behind the door. But as I focus on the two people there and I start to talk to them about Jesus, I don't notice the door. Every time I stop talking about Jesus and start talking about anything else, I see the door again. And I feel the drawing in my heart to know what is on the other side of the door, even though I already know what's on the other side of the door. You know what I mean when I say I don't even want to want to sin? Because I'm a grandfather now. About that time, I woke up because I had to pee. It was great. I was saved by the instant and overwhelming need to urinate. God will always provide a way out. And as, as you approach 50, he might uh, apply a way out three or four times a night. You never know. Listen, I, I the next day had to modify something. The day before I had looked Nick Eregina in the eye and said, I do not want to sin. And to the best of my ability, that was uh, completely true. I had to come to him the next day and I said, I do not want to want to sin. Are you somewhere between those two statements today? Do you have these rope burns on you because you've tied yourself to the church, but you are longing for other things? And maybe you're not this week, but you were last week. And you know in a couple weeks, it'll come back. See, the gospel is about transformation. It's about a transformation, not so much of action. Those actions follow the heart. It's a transformation of your heart so that you don't want to want to sin. Go with me to Nehemiah 7 and verse 2. Say there when you're there. And if you hadn't noticed, I'm kind of in a mood, so everybody's got to say there. I'm, there we go. I swallowed a whole nasty Starbucks egg yolk. I don't know what that was. It just, that's all it was. See, everything's fixed by shaking it up a little. We need to shake it up in here, people. Amen. All right. Are you in Nehemiah 7 too? Yes. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity, and he feared God more than most men do. Now, the God's honest truth is I put that scripture here just because I like it. You can do that. When you preach, you can pick a scripture you like. 
but it also happens to have the word hoss in it. And the LXX uses this phrase differently than the NIV picks it up. NIV, where it says man of integrity, in the Greek, that phrase literally says, in the manner or in the way of integrity. He's a man who is in the manner of or in the way of integrity. The reason that I say that is integrity has to do with what you do when no one else can see you, when there is no accountability. And this man walked in the manner or in the way of integrity more than most men do. What a compliment, don't you think? If you will not be punished, what do you desire to do? When you go on the all-inclusive cruise and nobody that you know is on it, what do you do? If you will not be punished, what do you desire to avoid doing? You know? Why does the church attendance drop when some pastors are out of town and others are in town? Why do you think that is? And it's not just church attendance. It's home meeting attendance. You know, I, I don't know why. I, uh, <laughs> but I can tell you, if I'm going to a moving day and I tell all of you that I'm going to be at the moving day, we have more people at the moving day than if you know I'm not going to be there. Why is that? Can I tell you why? Something is wrong with our hearts. We don't do things because it's the right thing to do. We do it because we want to be seen doing it. We do it because we have other motivators that are external rather than internal. See, when we walk in the way of integrity, it's not about who saw you. It's not about what recognition you get. The internal motivator is because you want to be like God. That's what you want to be. These questions may help you zero in on the sin that's crouching at your door. That's what good preaching is supposed to do. Even if it's not good preaching, that's what the Word does. You might also ask yourself, if you will not be rewarded, what do you desire to do? If there was no heaven at the end of this, if there is no blessing at the end of your travail, would you still do it? Why would you still do it? Do you understand how we have to move away from external motivations? If you will not be rewarded, what would you avoid doing that you're presently doing now? You know, Paul, Paul was pretty honest about this. He said, if only for hope in this life, we're to be pitied more than all men. He had an external motivator, but it was off-world. It was not on this world. It was of another dimension. It was of a higher plane. He wasn't doing what he was doing for your praise. If he was doing what he was doing for your praise, he would have preached a more acceptable gospel. But instead, he preached the gospel that got Jesus killed, and he got killed for it. Greed and fear are not the aim of the gospel, discipleship, or of God. The point was to train our heart to want what God wants. This necessarily starts with our actions, but we all know it's possible to act compliantly and in our heart not be compliant. Oh man, don't you hate that with your children? How many of you have teenagers? A teenager is a really special thing because they can absolutely excel at going, you told me not to cross that line. I didn't cross it. 
I'm not crossing it. How dare you act as if I'm crossing it? Why would you say I'm crossing it? What's wrong with you that you would say I'm crossing it? You told me not to cross it, and I'm not crossing it. Teenagers have a way. I mean, Curtis, how does... What, one time I was talking to Curtis, and he literally lost the power of speech. He said, Eric, and I told him, put, put the sweater up, and... Ah! <laughs> and you know what is funny about that? It's straight from his spirit to mine. I understood that completely, totally. It was like the logos of Curtis invaded my mind. I felt what he felt. I thought what he thought all in that moment. We are not after a way of life that does it because it's what everybody else does. Does it because you'll be ostracized if you don't. Does it because of some external motivator. We want to be men who are moved by that Caesarea Philippi conviction. It's been deposited right in your heart. And now you want to do and you, you don't want to do anything else. All you want to do is what the Lord wants of you. And that is a world of difference from watching your clock and leaving one minute after the time you stated you would be there or five minutes before the time you stated you would be there. See, when you have these kind of external motivators in your life, it's hard to grow. You're a baby. But when something inside your heart begins to motivate you to want to be pleasing to God, Wow, you're not looking for getting as close to the line as you can without crossing it and sometimes falling over. You're just running with the Lord. Jeremiah 31 speaks of this. How stands your heart in this house this morning? Jeremiah 31, 31. The time is coming. Somebody say is coming. Declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And with the house of Judah. Who is the new covenant with? Israel and Judah. It's for them. The fact that you could be included in it is a mystery. This is an Israeli thing. It will always be an Israeli thing. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their forefathers. When I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Doesn't this passage kind of get to the point? You know what's happened to this passage. When you got to the point that says that your sins are forgiven, if in fact they are, you skip past the part about the law being in your heart and mind. And you skip further past the point of no one needing to teach you because you would be internally motivated. You said the new covenant is about the forgiveness of my sins. No, the result of the new covenant is the forgiveness of your sins. The new covenant is about the internalizing of the motivating force. No longer would this have anything to do with penalty. No longer would this have anything to do with uh, a desire for temporal reward. It would all be because 
the word of God dwelling inside of you would compel you. Does the love of Christ compel you today? See, when we talk about we're in a new covenant, we're in a new covenant, we're in a new covenant, the new covenant takes the law that is the older covenant and it puts it right inside your heart. It doesn't do away with it. It actually internalizes the motivator. Man, what an important concept. See, discipleship is not about putting handcuffs on you. Discipleship is not about putting training wheels on you or forcing you into some cube-like cookie-cutter system. Discipleship is providing an environment where what has been foreign and external becomes the inward desire of your heart so that when nobody else is around, you are yearning after the Lord. So let me ask you, what are your conversations like when the leaders aren't listening? When those you respect the most are not present, does your behavior change? When those you fear the most are not present, does your behavior change? If you will be seen and it will be posted on Facebook for the world, does your behavior change? change. If you get a medal for showing up, does your behavior change? Because these are all immature issues. And they're people without heavenly conviction. But when you have heavenly conviction, the motivations become internal. What are you aiming at this morning? It's precisely because we've not arrived at the complete fulfillment of what Jeremiah is talking about, that discipline and discipleship are so important. Are we in a place where everyone knows the Lord? Are we in a place where nobody has need to teach their neighbor? See, he's speaking about the completion of the ages, and we're in the process of obtaining that image of God where we're there now. I mean, where we're on our way there now. That's the point. Are you further today than you were last year? Let's go to Matthew 10. Say there when you're there. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like Hoss in the same manner or in the same way as his teacher and the servant like his master. The head of the house has been called Beelzebub. How much more the members of his household. How important would that internal motivation be? Because if you get in the way of the master, if you're anything like him, what is waiting for you? Persecution, derision, difficulty, hardship. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. This is why the carnal church has laid before everyone external motivators. How do you get somebody to come to your pagan Easter service? Well, you give away a car. You hand out Starbucks. You put a playland out there. You put a carnal athlete in a ridiculous costume. You do something carnal so that they will have an external reward for coming. You know what that defines you as? Something other than the church. See, it is the truth 
that if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. You're not above your master. But listen, this passage is not a warning. It sounds like a warning. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough. Say, it's enough. It's enough enough for the student to be like his teacher. Because the goal was always to be in the image of Christ. That's the goal. That's the reward. No matter what else happens to you, you know that you're like Jesus. You know that your heart is like His. Your mind is like His. You're walking like Him. The goal was let us make man in our own image and you are in that process. It's enough for you to look up and go, I look like Jesus. Say, he rose from the dead on Easter, but uh, we got to give away a car to get somebody to church. Are you kidding? Or have Operation Dumbo Drop. Or Easter eggs. Or I know for Christmas this year, which is also a pagan holiday, what we'll do is we'll have Circus Olay come in our church. This is a mockery. But I don't want to talk about them anymore. I want to talk about you. Why are you here? See, discipleship is the process of seeing you transformed through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and the power of the Word to incline your heart. That's why you are here. Are you here for the right reason and are you getting what you're supposed to get here? Because you can be here and not here. It happens all of the time. In fact, I'm pretty sure that if I ask Tuesday to a few of you that I could name in advance, you'll have no idea what Sunday was about. That means that you're here, but you're not here, right? I want you to be transformed into the image of Christ. And all too often in the charismatic world, we say, oh, it'll happen by the power of the Holy Ghost. Yes, the power of the Holy Ghost will cause you to want to be discipled. The power of the Holy Ghost will cause you to want to read your Bible. But do you know what the power of the Holy Ghost does not do? Allow you to bypass all of those things. It is enough for the student to be like their master. Do you have that reward today? Because I can tell you, when I got on my knees here, we were singing uh, to him who sits on the throne. I was on my knees right here, and I was remembering the very first time that I knew God was proud of me. The very first time that I knew I had the favor of the Lord. And I was saying, Lord, I want that feeling again. I want to know that I'm like you, not in some theological sense, not in uh, some abstract ethereal sense, right now, today. I want my heart to be like yours, my desire to be. Have you ever looked at those scriptures like Psalm 37, he will give you the desires of your heart? That presupposes that your heart is like his. Otherwise, you would be asking for Lamborghinis. You would be asking for fame and fortune. You would be asking for a life of ease. You would be asking for a life that allowed terrible character. In fact, you want to read some people's commentary on that scripture and they'll tell you it's not true because they can't have those things. What's not true is that their heart is nothing like God's. That's what's, what's true. See, what we want is to be like Him. One of the things that my dream revealed to me is that I need to attack not so much the things that I am uh, doing or not doing in action, but the motivator behind my actions. I'm disappointed 
I don't know about you, but I am disappointed at how wicked my heart can still be, how deceptive my heart can still be. Let's go to 1 Peter 1, 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as, Hoss, but just in the same manner or in the same way as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy, why? Because I am holy. We're not holy because the wages of sin is death. We're not holy because you'll be rewarded for that holiness. Those are external motivators. Why should we want to be holy? Because we want to bear His image and He is holy. We want to be like Him. Can I tell you that God is not sitting around tempted by sin? How about that? How many things are pulling at your heart and mind? How easily are you offended? How easily are you angered? How easily are you drawn after things that are not God? You're beginning to see the areas that you still need to be sanctified. Because He's not sitting around of two opinions about something, one that's holy and one that's not holy. He's not. He's not divided in anything that He does. He is holy. We were in a pastor's meeting the other day and we realized that about 20, 25 of us are in a, a fluctuating situation in your living environment. You are either moving or contemplating a move. It's a bunch of people. And we were talking and, well, what about this? And, well, what about this? And what about this? And then one of the pastors who's more godly than me said, with all respect, none of us have heard from God. Let's stop talking about this. Man, that was rude and holy and righteous because we were beginning to get invested in what we thought should happen and you know what the only thing that anybody should want to happen is God's will right and none of us knew what it was how many things in your life are working exactly like that and you would excuse my story and excuse your story as well we were just talking no you were investing in something that was not God wow that's a heavy thought isn't it 1 Peter 1.14 is a call to the disciple. It's as if God were speaking to you and He's saying, Be holy because I am holy. No other motivator. You should want to be like me. I made you and am making you into my image. You will be as I am, but no shortcuts. You don't get to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and shortcut the process. You don't get to go around the gate some other way. The holiness that you will have will have been worked out through suffering and travailing and following the Lord in every difficult crucifixion that you can imagine. That's how it's worked out. It's a call to the disciple. 
Our next passage is a call to the discipler. It's 1 Thessalonians 2, and we're going to start in verse 10. Let me know when you've arrived. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how, how is Hoss, of the manner in which, or the way in which, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. See, we have this idea that when the Bible tells the disciple, be holy even as I am holy, that it's an unobtainable goal. That it's, it's like he's telling you to aim for it. You can't hit it. So the end result is we ought not even try. It's just some kind of theological word game. What does Paul say here? You are witnesses. And so is God. Of the manner in which or the way in which we were holy, righteous, and blameless when we were among you who believed. Is that incredible? He knew that his heart... And his actions displayed before them represented God's image to them. And he was proud of the way that he did it. Does that sound like an unobtainable standard? Or does that sound like a man who was empowered by God to be the image and light of Christ to them? Well, which week have you had where you could confidently look at the people that are around you and say, you are witnesses and so is God of how holy righteous and blameless we were among you who believed because we should we should that's not unobtainable the scripture records when Paul loses his temper the scripture records Paul uh, in a sharp dispute with Barnabas the scripture records Paul um, Maybe not being so forgiving of John Mark. The scripture records a lot of things. But it also shows us that on this time period, he was crushing it. Man, how do you want to live this next week? There was a call to the disciple. This is a call to the discipler and look where it finishes. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into His kingdom and glory. I want to be holy because the Lord is holy. Do you know else why, I, why else I want to be holy? Because I want you to live a life worthy of the call of God. And I want to be able to look at you and say, my every action and the motive behind those actions has been pure you and everyone else imitate us in this manner you see how important it is that we get this right the last one in Matthew you might make your way up here is a call to both the discipler and the disciple say it's a call to both it's a call to so as much as you might have thought you fit in one category or the other in the two scriptures or maybe you thought you fit in neither there's no one in the room that ought to be untouched by this passage. Who, who in the room ought to be untouched? First no John 1 John 1.7. It's our last passage on Hoss. 
I want you to be a godly hoss. But if we walk in the light, hoss, he is in the light. If we walk in the light in the manner that he is in the light, if we walk in the light in the way that he is in the light. Man, that says a lot, doesn't it? Let that settle in on you for a second. It's not going to church. It's not memorizing the Roman road to salvation. It's not external compliance. It's not because you live in the right place. It's not because you stopped doing certain things. If you are in the light in the manner that He is in the light, if your life looks like Him, if your heart looks like His, if your thoughts look like His, then we have fellowship with one another. And the first product of walking like He walks, of being a hoss like Him, the first product is fellowship with each other. What is the second? And the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Are you having trouble getting rid of guilt in your life? Are you living just managing your evil desires, trying to restrain them so that they don't manifest in a way that causes some kind of external reaction? See, I can look out here and see how many of you are. That was never the intent of the gospel. That is for the extraordinarily immature the whole reason for external issues, penalties, reactions, consequences, was to change your internal motivation. You're supposed to be growing to a place where we are not managing our wicked desires. We're eliminating our wicked desires. Amen. Your heart being transformed so that you don't want things that God doesn't want. And there's only one way to get the transformation. You've got to be honest about where your heart is right now. Bring that to the Lord and say, I'm broken. Saved, yes. Sanctified, not by a long shot. Look at this, Lord. In remaking me, in making me a new creation, don't leave this out. I can't live with it. You know what that causes you to do? Win. And my God, there's nothing I want to do more than win. It causes you to walk with your head held high. It causes you to be able to live a life that you know God is proud of and you are proud of. Oh man, to be in Christ but not be proud of what Christ is doing in you that's a tragedy, isn't it? I told you we were going to take a giant step forward today. Say, oh, Eric, we've heard so many messages. You never heard a message that if you applied would change your life more than this. Maybe many that would equal it. But we are living with things we don't have to live with. And we're trying to manage things that don't belong in our yard at all. What are we supposed to do daily for Christ? Die. Let's start by identifying the desires that you have, the things that are crouching at your door that you need to kick 
out from your door, out from your yard, off of your street, and out of your life altogether, and you can't unless the Holy Ghost help you supernaturally. See, if you walked out of this room having done that, don't tell me you won't walk out transformed. That would be a giant step in discipleship. And if you cross your arms, look out and say, I hope those people do it, man, you have missed the point and you're dangerously close to the idea that killed Jesus. Church, the good news is he does enter into that situation and change you. The night he first spoke to me, I had contemplated suicide. I was involved in every wicked practice that a man of my age could be involved in and many that none of my peers had ever considered. They hadn't encountered it yet. And you know what? He washed away most that night. Having delivered three quarters of the land, do you really think that he won't drive out the remaining giants? Why does he leave them there? So that you will depend upon him for the transformation you need daily. And you won't get too big for your own ego. Could you stand to your feet?